All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to Bumper, a new DeFi protocol that is here to redefine how you protect your crypto assets. Obviously, market volatility can be a big concern for us crypto holders. Go check out Bumper. It's bumper.fi. Take a step towards smarter crypto asset risk management. This episode is brought to you by Toku. If you are planning to launch a token, already have a live token, are granting employees or contractors vesting token awards, or are just trying to figure out how to take care of taxable token events for your team, from easy to use token grant award templates through tracking vesting to managing tax withholdings, make it simple today with Toku. All right, everyone. Welcome to uh, the world's greatest stablecoin episode. Coming here live on uh, on Empire, we have uh, Santi, we have Nick Carter, and we have uh, Martin, first time guest, but sounds like long time listener. So, Martin, Nick, uh, good to have you guys. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, pumped to have you guys. So, there's um, it's funny. Santi and I've wanted to do a stablecoin episode for a while. There are kind of two ways to approach a stablecoin episode. There are uh, there's like why are stablecoins set up to be be this colossal success, right? There's U.S. is issuing more debt than ever. China is selling down its treasuries. There's the probably the pitch that you would give to a U.S. politician. Like, we need stable coins to further U.S. dollar demand across the world. Uh, then there's the, Nick, I heard you talk about this in, in your token 2049 and mainnet talk, but I think it's token 2049, like euro dollars. Stable coins are kind of almost just doing what euro dollars did 50 years ago. Um, so that's one way to approach this. The other way to approach this is, look, stable coins are just a better product. They're just... They're more, they're they're easier to access U.S. dollars, and they're more efficient. And what we're going to try to do here in this episode is accomplish both of those. So, Nick, I'm going to pick on you first. Can you almost just give us like the setup for stablecoins as you see it today? And you can either approach that from like euro dollars perspective or just demand for dollars. I guess they're kind of one and the same. But yeah, give us the setup for uh, stablecoins right now. Yeah, I mean. Uh... My perspective is you can't uh, start with the ways that stablecoins are potentially accretive to U.S. interests. That has to be the second part. The first thing has to be, okay, what are stablecoins good for? Why do people want them? Why are they growing? Or Frankly, they're shrinking right now, but why are they generally growing? And then from that, okay, given that stablecoins are a thing now and they're not going away, how is that supportive of U.S. interests? How could it be supportive of U.S. interests? So that was kind of the subject of my main net talk. So I think the, my preferred lens is sort of why are stablecoins even a thing? Um, because I have this notion of sort of the crypto critic in my head, right. just denying the usefulness of stablecoins. And so I'm always trying to sell the industry to outsiders, right? And so that kind of motivated my talk at Mainnet. And I think for that that's why I wanted to go back into the euro dollars history, sort of the early history of euro dollars, kind of 60s and 70s, uh, to draw those parallels, explain, well, it's actually not that uncommon for sort of alternative forms of money to emerge, especially if the sort of local monetary banking system is restrictive in some way. So it's kind of a natural thing that happens, a market-driven phenomenon. And the to push that analogy further, Sometimes, even if this is sort of an outside money, not in the sort of, uh, not in sort of like the literal sense, but a money that's outside the US banking sector, sometimes it ends up being folded in to the kind of formal governed sector in some sense. And that could be the natural progression. We saw it with euro dollars, obviously, with the Fed ultimately embracing the euro dollar system and supporting it. We may well one day see that with stable coins too. So, 
the thrust of my argument on stablecoins is it's a market-driven phenomenon. It's emerging in response to real need. It's not an artificial thing. Like There's a genuine use for this thing worldwide that we're seeing, which is also disconnected from sort of crypto speculative dynamics in, in a large sense. And potentially, this thing could be something that the US ends up embracing as opposed to being hostile towards. Yeah. So euro dollars were, were created as, as this, I think it was Russia maybe creating them in a French or a UK bank account. Basically, as a the way I understand it is euro dollars are almost like stable coins that were created as a solution to settle dollar transactions without relying on the traditional banking system. And um, I th- yeah, I think it was Russia who created them in the 50s or 60s, you mentioned, to transact in dollars while avoiding asset seizures. Um, and then, you know, you fast forward 60 years and stable coins were created because Bitfinex had trouble banking. Like, what are the similar, like, can you just double click on euro dollars for a sec to kind of share the similarities here? Yeah, there's a bunch. So it, there's also some disanalogies like euro dollars aren't typically like that. Those are just kind of banking system dollars that are issued out of foreign right. banks and so not U.S. banks. So they're not strictly uh, backed as the convention is with stable coins by you know all short-term treasuries or anything or cash like that right so those are kind of more ordinary bank liabilities which are backed by whatever the portfolio of assets it is that that bank has so that's kind of a big disanalogy that i would emphasize at the start and they may not even strictly be backed by dollar assets which is another (laughs) complication uh but yeah i mean the you know i think the motive for them was okay People wanted to transact with dollars globally, especially as we emerged from World War II. The U.S. became the dominant trading partner for everybody. And uh, the the British pound lost its standing in the 50s as a global reserve. And um, at the same time, you know, there were foreign nations that weren't necessarily aligned with the U.S., wanted to transact with dollars, but were concerned that the U.S. would be weaponizing the dollar system, which, of course, they love to do. So yeah, I think the one of the first examples was Russia creating these dollar deposits in France and later London in banks there, uh, so that they could be more remote from the from the U.S. banking system. With time, it just became more convenient to do this. Uh, also, the U.S. banking system had a whole bunch of restrictions. There's a thing called Reg Q, I believe, which capped the amount of interest that U.S. banks could pay out, and so there's kind of um, you know, certain banks realized they could attract dollar deposits. Again, foreign banks, they could attract deposits if they offered a higher rate of interest than what the um, sort of regulatorily defined rate was in the US. And so that's another big reason the euro dollar market grew. With time throughout the 60s, uh, as dollar trade became more widespread globally, this market continued to grow. And then in the 70s, uh, we had kind of the oil shock and the emergence of the quote unquote petrodollar. Which was the, you know, basically the fact that the dollar became this important reserve currency for the trade of oil. You know, the Saudis agreed to sell their oil for dollars, and it became essential to have these offshore dollars to facilitate global oil trade, especially after the oil shock in '73. Um, so at that point, the U.S. Um, they'd initially been pretty skeptical of the euro dollar market. It was growing without their supervision. They were worried that they would have a loss of monetary control. We're talking about dollar deposits, potentially, which did ultimately eclipse the size of the local domestic banking market. And uh, so they were worried about it and kind of puzzled over what to do with it. 
And ultimately, they created sort of dollar liquidity uh, facilities with a lot of foreign central banks, especially the allied ones, so that the dollar deposits in those local banking systems would ultimately by, be backstopped by the Fed in the time of crisis. Um, and so that was kind of like a the uh, institutionalization of the euro-dollar market, which happened kind of the late 60s, early 70s, as the Fed went from being fearful of this thing to kind of embracing it. Hmm. So the, the parallels I'd draw would be, one, a desire to transact with dollars outside of the aegis of the Federal Reserve, clearly also the case with um, crypto dollars, stable coins. Um, exchanges worldwide have had difficulty settling with their clients for years and years. Bitfinex has been kind of hounded. They were the ones behind Tether. That meant that they could maintain one or two banking relationships and have dollar liquidity with their clients. So that say, you know, was a huge unlock for them. Uh, another one is um, the market was an opportunity for these independent uh, offshore regulators and you know, regulatory domiciles to distinguish themselves, which certainly happened with London, with Euro dollars. London became the hub of this. And it we see kind of happening with stable coins and crypto. You see certain jurisdictions really embracing it as the US moves away from it. You see it in Singapore, Bermuda, we'll discuss today, Hong Kong, you know, potentially Dubai. Like you see a lot of, you know, these regulators playing the the game to attract these kinds of deposits, attract this activity. You saw that with Euro dollars, you see that with crypto dollars. Um, it variable interest rates. So Interest rates being zero or low in the U.S., um, uh, you know that facilitated the growth of the euro dollar market as well. As euro dollars offered higher rates, you saw sort of crypto dollars paying higher rates than TradFi in twenty one, twenty two. That was like a huge thunderstorm here. Um, and then the last parallel, which hasn't happened yet, hasn't played out yet, is even though the U.S. was initially skeptical of this offshore market, they ultimately found it. Uh, supportive of their interests. Hmm. And so that hasn't happened with crypto dollar stables. Right now, the stance is still pretty hostile, but you could expect that ultimately they would kind of see the light and, and change their mind there. Yeah. There's this... Um, uh, uh, now let's, let's approach this from the other angle, right? Which is like stable coins as the product, right? Better efficiency, better access. And there's this... Um, I don't know if you guys ever listened to Wences Casares, who started Zappo, which ended up becoming Coinbase Custody. But he has this quote about... He says it's... I, he says, I, I think the U.S. is the hardest place in the world to explain Bitcoin. Why? Because the money works and the government works. And he goes, Argentina is one of the easiest. And I think, Martin, you are from Argentina or spent that, some... That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I was looking at um at this publication in Argentina, which I heard you mention on a podcast. And I can share the screen right here. It's uh, ladnacion.com forward slash... Or dot, here, I'll share it right yeah, here. Just, just the homepage. That's the biggest newspaper in the country. Biggest newspaper um, in the country. There are four dollar amounts here. There are four different, uh, basically, rates for dollars. There's the CCL dollar, the tourist dollar, the blue dollar, and the official dollar. So, what I'd love to like hear from you is basically why are there four rates, and like take us on the ground in Argentina to help us understand why is there why is there this demand internationally for both the U.S. dollar and stable coins? Yeah. So, the the demand for dollars is. The inflation in Argentina right now is like about 100%. So I, I was in Argentina back in May 1st, and the blue dollar was around $400, 400 pesos. So the number that you see there at 800 now was half of, of what that is. Um, 
so th there is a there is a real inflation problem. Um, very like the, the the causes are traditional, right? The causes of inflation, uh, deficit, uh, overprinting of money. Um, but then, like the, what Argentinians have learned, and the inflation has been over forty percent per year since I, at least two thousand eight. So, like Argentinians have learned to like inflation is a reality. How do I hedge against inflation? So everyone's a CFO, and the most obvious way in which you hedge against like a 40% inflation, you go to a harder currency, and that currency, the default has been the dollar. So even before stablecoins were a thing, you have a market, like official market for dollars that is highly restricted unless you are connected to the government in some sort of way, or you're doing some of the exempted uh, industries where you have access to this dollar, you cannot access it. So then a, a secondary market for dollar gets created, um, that's the dollar blue. And then as a secondary market, you have like all sorts of ways to arbitrage this market, right? So you have, you can buy stocks in New York and then transfer them to Argentina. That's an implied dollar. That's a CCL. You have a dollar where you can buy casino chips in a casino in Uruguay that has a, that has a, um, like a, like a, uh, location in Buenos Aires. So you can arbitrage those two. You can travel to Chile if you're close and you can swap your card. And then whatever your card does, it's another uh, dollar. So like all these like numbers of dollars starts to, to explode. And then the government starts to control them. So they will put specific taxes to each of these. So you have the dollar Netflix, which is a tax to make sure that the Netflix purchase amounts are very close to what the blue dollar is. So that, that creates like, that explosion in numbers. What you see in La Nación is a summary of the most important ones. Um, there's other sites that have like, there's like 15 of, of these dollars. There's also the dollar crypto, right? Which is based on the, what, P2P markets? Dollar crypto is all the P2P markets and all the exchanges. So you have like that one, if you double, that's an average of like a bunch of markets. And the dollar crypto is probably the best predictor of what's going to happen with the dollar blue hmm. because it's 24-7, right? So uh, all of these exchanges, there's people who arbitrage all these dollars. And stable coins came in and they offered a better way to access dollars. So... What, what was the way in which we used to save dollars before is you would go and buy dollars in person and you would get a piece of paper. Is that dollar uh, fake or not? Right? You don't know. And sometimes they will put fake dollars uh, in that transaction and then you try to put them in an ATM in the US and they fail. So you, you have that risk. You have custody risk of paper money, right? Where you put it in a safe in the bank. 2001, there was a Coralito in Argentina. They opened the safes. So like the safe in the bank is not safe. Mm. So... You put it in your home, but you could, someone can break in. So you have a lot of custody problems with, with accessing dollars. Stablecoins solve a lot of that problem. So stablecoin is a very easy to access. You access it with a, with a local payment network. You buy your dollars. The custody is simpler, and then you can pay other people internationally with it. It's just a better product out there. And that's why you're seeing the explosion of stablecoins uh, in Argentina. You still have skeptics, right? Like anywhere, but the penetration of stablecoins are like everyone will know what they are. And it's just a matter of do I think I'm sophisticated enough to manage the technology or not? And that's the big question is the UX. It's not the do I think this is better than having a dollar in my bank mm. today? How do you get dollars? How do you get dollars? I've heard you share the story about like someone on a, on a, a bike showing up and use Tron. Like, how, how do you actually get dollars today? Yeah. So, when we were uh, discussing the analysis that Nick presented, we were like, why is Tether growing and USDC going down? 
And the, the, I think there's two different markets. You have USDC, it's more DeFi, it's more um, like economic activity in Ethereum. And then USDT is more people accessing dollars in emerging markets. And mm -hmm. that market in Tron is continuing to, in Tether is continuing to grow. And Tron is a network that emerging markets are, are willing to pay for, for gas just because it's cheaper. So USDT in Tron is the winner and all of the network effects in Argentina, but also in Turkey, in all these countries, it, um, these guys are winning. In terms of how you access this, it, there's, there's multiple ways. What most of the, let's say you're a developer in Argentina, you work for a company from Silicon Valley, you get your salary paid in, in crypto and you need to pay rent. What you'll do is you'll probably, you have a contact, you message them through WhatsApp and say, I want to sell $1,000. The company, like it's a small shop, will send a, someone on a scooter with a bag, with like their backpack, with a paper bag full of like pesos. And like, imagine the pesos, <laughs> they're like super bulky. You have people like tourists that go there, like they take their pictures because it's like so much money. Like, um, so they have their backpack full of pesos. And then they give you like a bag. You don't even count them because it's so many. You just count like how many stacks you have and you give them like 10 bills of, of 100 or you'll give them a transaction with uh, USDT in Tron settled in person immediately. And then the person just goes and you have your, your pesos uh, for your rent, for whatever expenses you need to do. And then much, the opposite is also true. How much merchant adoption is there? Merchant adoption... They're like whoever you want to pay and say, hey, do you take stable coins? They will probably take them. In terms of them pushing for that, um, you're not going to see signs everywhere about this because, of course, the government doesn't want this market to materialize. So uh, usually if you ask, you're going to be able to pay for, um, for, ex for your expenses on, on USDT. Hmm. There's also like... We have a ton of tourism from neighboring countries, Brazil in particular. A lot of the Brazilians that come, they pay with, uh, with USDT because it's easier than bringing their, uh, their own currency. And they also save on their own uh, taxes uh, from, uh, from uh, consuming foreign currencies. And, and this happens on Tron because it's cheaper than ETH? It's cheaper than ETH. I think Tron, the timing in Tron was really good. They understood that emerging markets needed something cheaper and... None of the L2s today are, are going after this market. I feel like you need to actually be on the ground and, and yeah. try to break that network effect. Today, there's cheaper versions than Tron, but Tron just like scaled so quickly uh, in, in, and they were the only ones at that point in time. What is the... So I know in some emerging markets, I don't know how it works in Argentina, you can, you, you can actually have dollars in your bank account. So what is the difference between dollars in a bank account in an emerging market versus a claim on a dollar... Which is, which is in the bank account, that's basically a claim on the dollar versus a claim on the dollar with something like stable coins. How do you think about the difference there? So let's talk about Argentina, but then I think this translates to a lot of emerging countries. So if you have a claim on a dollar on a bank in Argentina, you have a claim on $1 collateralized by whatever that bank has, which usually is not a lot of dollars. If they have dollars, usually they get swapped against notes from the central bank until the central bank of Argentina cannot support those loan, those notes, they default, and then your dollars get converted into pesos. Uh, and that happened in the eighties. It happened in 2001, probably it will happen again soon uh, because they're Argentinian. Like if you look at the reserves of the central bank, uh, they are like almost going to zero. 
So you have that claim. When things are good, you, you feel like you have a dollar until something happens and you don't have a dollar anymore. When you have a stable coin, you're translating that, like you're still trusting someone to hold an asset. The question is you're trusting someone that's regulated in, in our case, for instance, Bermuda versus Argentina. And you're trusting a regulator that is telling you, hey, you need to disclose what you have collateralizing these assets. And that collateral is like short-term uh, US treasuries versus in Argentina, it would be a portfolio of credit cards, mortgages, car loans, et cetera, right? So the collateral quality is way better on a stable, on a well-constructed stablecoin. And also the legal framework or, or the regulator who you're trusting, in the end, you're trusting a centralized party, but who that party is, is, is a higher bar uh, mm -hmm. than holding uh, deposits locally. So mm -hmm. I think those are the two main advantages from a claim perspective. The other advantage is just stablecoins being programmatic internet money. Um, but in terms of the claim, I think those are the two differences. Do you have a sense of like penetration within Argentina? And Nick, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is the the aggregate demand of stablecoins has actually been shrinking. Um, it's still, you know, if you look over a five, six, seven year period, it's grown tremendously. But in the near term, it, it has sort of stagnated or just gone down. But Martin, maybe if you can give us a on the ground, like, um, kind of adoption within Argentina, within kind of these markets where inflation's rampant, people prefer to hold dollars versus just traders using it because rates, you know, are better in TradFi than DeFi kind of thing. I, I think what you said is, is exactly that, right? Like USDC is going down because the opportunity cost of holding USDC is 5%. You cannot make that with a level of risk that makes sense in, in, in DeFi. So people are just exiting. And uh, I would say whoever could exit has already exited the, the, the system. On the USDT side, as a proxy to emerging market use case of stablecoins, that continues to grow. Nick uh, invested and sees a lot of deals of like centralized exchanges that operate locally in, in these emerging markets. And uh, we also serve them as customers. They are continuing to grow, right? Like the demand for dollars as stablecoins from local people, but also businesses continues to, to scale up. And the use cases of stablecoins continue to build. So... It's like a tale of two worlds on the speculation side or like very uh, like ROI focused uh, side of things. You see a, a very a very big decline. I think that mm -hmm. will come back pretty soon. But then on the kind of like real, I, I need a dollar use case that continues to, continues to scale. Yeah, and it's also like it really depends what variable you're looking at. I mean, uh, yeah, the, the you know it depends if we're counting UST at all, not USDT, but UST. I mean, that was what twenty, thirty billion uh, in UST uh, at peak. That was, I think, that was illusory for the most part. So if you count that, the supply of stables cap reached one eighty billion, I believe. Uh, if you don't count it, it's less. And now it's drawn down to around one twenty five billion. And uh, I think a lot of that drawdown reflects rate sensitivity. I mean, vast majority of stable coins don't pass along any interest at all. If you're a USDC holder, you presumably have pretty easy access to just get into treasuries. So it makes sense that as the, uh, you know, TradFi rate exceeded the crypto rate, um, you know, the supply of stables decrease. I think that will turn. Um, I think most folks that are rate sensitive have, have exited, um, especially as opportunities get better in the crypto market. Uh, and the, sort of the crypto rates, you know, starts rivaling the TradFi rate again. I think you'll see that turn. The other metrics to look at are, 
you know, the transactional value of stable coins is, you know, it's down slightly, not, uh, not that much uh, over the last two years, but it's on, uh, it's kind of flat on a decreasing monetary base, which implies higher velocity. So you see that in the numbers. So kind of each unit of your sort of generic unit of stablecoin is turning over more frequently. And if you look at monthly active users on chain, that's growing. That's at an all time high. So a lot of the usage metrics are actually up uh, or at all time highs historically, even though the kind of monetary base of stablecoins is down. And anecdotally, Sadi, you're seeing more people like that you that wouldn't use stablecoins in the US, right? Like I've onboarded people that are 60, 70 year old that use stablecoins because they 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 just trust stablecoins better than they trust the local banking system mm-hmm. because they use them for uh, payments. Um, so you're seeing that adoption continuing to to kind of like scale up. Um, so yeah, I think that that it's still like not like I think the banking system at least in RGT is still bigger than than the stablecoin market. But this is like stablecoins didn't exist like practically about like three, four years ago, the TVL was almost like close to zero. And now it, it is continuing to scale. So I think that that flip will happen uh, at some point pretty soon. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, I believe the there's one presidential candidate for Argentina who's, you know, very knowledgeable in crypto, very pro crypto, and says at some point we should abolish the Argentinian peso. I think I heard him say that. Is this, is this Mila? The Javier Mila? Yeah. 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 Uh, like, I'm just curious to understand how you see like stablecoin growth continuing continuing to place like Argentina. Like, what is the what is a five ten year horizon for like? Hey, do you at one point see all transactions just why wouldn't they be denominated in stablecoins? Obviously, you know the government can come and enforce your hand. I'm kind of curious how you, but I think we're nowhere near there. Uh, you know, I think there seems like what are the biggest challenges? Is it hey the the wallet kind of infrastructure sucks people are still skeptical of crypto people are not very tech savvy or hey just merchants don't want it or the government just hates it so i'm curious how you think about the limiting factors too i think uh, a a good tell story there is venezuela venezuela has had higher inflation and longer than argentina and there if you go to merchants you do see uh payment networks uh like like blockchain payment networks uh that merchants advertise and I think that comes to the fact that like the dollarization, there is an even stronger case than it is in, in Argentina. I I think there's, of course, the UX problem that I think we need to solve, right? Uh, like a payment in crypto is still takes longer and it's more complex than a credit card and it's more complex than cash. Like we still need to solve uh, that problem. But then the, the, the other problem is, which is the actual tension that merchants have is what happens with the government when they come to enforce, right? Like how do I, what happens when the tax collection agency comes in and sees this, right? So how do, how do I solve this? And the tension there is that, that pressure versus like continuing to using, using the peso. I think Venezuela has broken that and like, like the, the, the Bolivar is so, loses value so much and it's so hard to use. Like, like the stacks of money are just like so big that like they went, they went full in. Uh, in Argentina, I think before you see merchants kind of like actually advertise this as a payment uh, product, you still need a little bit more uh, inflation to kick in and, 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 and some of those problems. If Millet wins, I think that could be, I think the transition is easier said than done. 
But let's imagine that happens. I think that could be massive for stablecoins um, because then you, you, you turn this into an official uh, product. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there you could see like a good sized chunk of the economy moving into stablecoins. Because everyone in Argentina that's using stables is breaking the law, so to speak, still. Exactly. Still, still, still. Are, do the, so do, do they self-cut? Like, let's say they're transacting in Tether. What what are they actually, where are they actually keeping that Tether? Are they self-custodying it? Is it just in, is it like the DeFi mullet just like sitting in a fintech app? Like, what does that actually look like when you when you pull up your phone? I would say uh, in terms of individuals, it's 80-20. 80% use a fintech app. In terms of volume, like actual like uh, stablecoin volume, I would say 50-50, right? Like people who hold more tend to self-custody and... Uh, especially after Luna happened and all of that, like people that, that have significant balances and by significant, I mean, $20,000, right? Like okay. it's not like millions. Those people are like, okay, I want to self custody because they've seen uh, Luna happened and FTX collapse and they're like, uh, I want to, and they saw the Corralito in 2001. So they've seen what happens when banks collapse, right? Uh, it's not, it's not a foreign thing for an Argentinian to see that. So I think self custody is like, I would say about 50%. But then kind of like the more retail, smaller users still use the, the, um, the DeFi mullet. And then all of the, like the 50% of self-custody is usually store of value. Most of the transactions, I would say it's like 95% happen on, on the CeFi side of things. So is that, go, is that also because of privacy? Like you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to send like a small transaction because people can, you know, inspect the wallet and say, oh, this guy actually has, you know, a ton of money and then you're a target. Because crime in Argentina, as there is in, in these emerging countries, is, is a big problem too. And so, you know, the privacy side of things—I don't know how how if people are truly aware of it, but for that reason, yeah. you want to use like a, a centralized exchange to send out. I, I've never heard that. Like, uh, I think in, in the crypto circle, like we know this. You like the reason they use uh, CFI more is the experience is easier, right? Like you okay. can pay with a QR code. You're connected to the local payment system. You sure. can pay with a card. So like, it's more convenience around the usage of crypto. Like, for instance, myself, I hold dollars on a CFI app. I know, like I don't hold all of my holdings there, but I hold enough that that is paying me a, a portion of yield. And then whenever I spend, I spend with my credit card and they get auto-converted at the current rate. Right. So that way, I don't have to hold any pesos. I'm not exposed to, to the peso, but I can still spend locally without, uh, like, I'm never doing a tra- like, a, like a transaction to swap. I never have to estimate how much I'm going to spend or anything like that. So I, I think that's that quality of experience that, that brings uh, users to CeFi. Anecdotally, I'm seeing an explosion in these DeFi mullet apps, uh, basically mobile money apps, um, neobank style apps that are just powered by stables on the back end. Are these for, legacy players, Nick? Are these like, like Monzo and N26, kind of like the legacy fintech players who just get excited about stables or are these new startups? We're seeing both. We're yeah. seeing both. Um, I mean, you're seeing traditional emitters like uh, MoneyGram getting into it. You're mm-hmm. seeing uh, Martin Filmian. There's a, there's a one particularly big one in LATAM that's that's uh, a legacy player that's getting into okay. stables as well. There's well Mercado Libre. Right, that's, are, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, they're like the they were covered by eBay, but today they work more like an Amazon, and they have one of the biggest. Pay, like today, they're mostly a payments company, and. They were working with Paxos, and recently they signed a deal with USDC, with Circle. Uh, they're starting in Chile, but they're going to allow Chilean peso to USDC conversion and transactions. So essentially, you're bringing the dollar to uh, the biggest payment network in the country, right? So um, 
it is mm. so prevalent that in Argentina they're thinking that they're passing a law so that they open their APIs for other people to use because like they're they're, they're like the, the the biggest winners in the category. So you're talking about like it's not even Venmo or or Zelle. It's like even more prevalent than that. Mm. It's like your Visa, if you will, in terms of like how prevalent that is. Uh, and those guys are bringing uh, stable coins in. There's a big deal with Grab, which is like the super app for mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. Like when I was in Singapore, it was Grab for everything. And they just signed a, a stable coin deal, I think, just two weeks ago. Do you know who that, uh, who that was with? That's a good question. I think it was Paxos, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to double check. There's also something weird with them where the stable coins are not ERC-20s in Grab. They're... Mm. Something else. NFTs. <laughs> oh, interesting. Non-fungible well, stable coins. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Nick, as an investor, and how you think about like these network effects. Obviously, you know, uh, Tron. Uh, I mean, like it's interesting that Tron has gone traction in these local markets because they just understood the local market. They understood you know, the, the the gasless component. You know, people are really sensitive to that. But what's really stopping any of these neobanks saying, hey, we can do exactly what Tether is doing and maybe in a better way without the checker background or whatever. And then um, like it just feels like there's a ton of opportunity to launch maybe even other denominated major currency denominations like euro stablecoin. We haven't seen really a large euro denominated stablecoins like circles come out, but like I would think that there's a lot of appetite and a huge opportunity to even maybe take advantage and undercutting someone like Tether and saying, hey, we're going to actually pass through some of the yield, half of it or whatnot, to the end customer. And that's huge. Like now you're giving people access to a more stable currency and yield. Like, you know, for folks, like the, the appendix here is like the amount of profitability. Like Tether is hugely profitable. Maker is hugely profitable. Um, but they're not passing that yield over like traditional banks. So I'm kind of curious, Nick, how you think about like, is this an investable opportunity or do local rules, regulations really like give you pause? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think the status quo whereby some entity that has a float, some financial intermediary, they're leaving it all on the table and every, all of the underlying yields are going to the issuer. That's not going to be the case <laughs> on a go forward basis, of course. I mean, Tether earns, I don't know, $86 billion market cap rates are 5%. Aren't they like the top five largest holder of US treasuries? Like more than like some of the Emir- like Emirati countries? I I think I did the numbers recently. I think all the fiat-backed stable coins collectively would be the considered the 16th largest holder of treasuries at the sovereign level. It's very big. Um, but yeah, Tether is larger than some sovereign nations for sure than many. Um, and they have 60 employees. So I believe they're the most profitable business per employee on the planet, which is remarkable. We're seeing a shift where exchanges, really anyone with a float, will either partner with an interest-bearing stablecoin or partner with a non-interest-bearing stablecoin but receive some of that yield or roll their own stablecoin. So we're seeing both things happening. I'm seeing um, like stablecoin as a service, startups uh, getting traction, going to some of these neo banks, remitters, anyone with a float, and helping them launch and list their own stable coins because rates are so high. Anybody that has a float is a bank now, and for a stable coin, if you choose not to pay into the yield, it's you know massively accretive. Hmm. So the whole terrain is changing. And the big stablecoin issuers, Tether might be a special case because they feel like they have such an advantage in network effect that they can not change anything about the business model. 
the USDC, the number two, like they now realize they need to react. Paxos's whole business model is white label stable coins. Uh, you know, like BUSD, for instance, they had a rev share with Binance. Uh, we're seeing this, the, you know, not tether, but the other top stable coins realize they need to start passing along some of the yield, whether through partnerships or they'll be disrupted by kind of the interest bearing stable coins, uh, like Mountain and, and there's many others as well. All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to Bumper, a new DeFi protocol that is here to redefine how you protect your crypto assets. Obviously, market volatility can be a big concern for us crypto holders. Bumper alleviates this by allowing you, the user, to lock your tokens into the protocol and set a price. No matter how much the market fluctuates, your investment in your token won't fall below the predetermined value. When you compare this to traditional options platforms, Bumper offers a non-custodial and actually cheaper on average alternative that protects the value of your crypto from market price drops. If you are looking to earn a yield on your crypto, Bumper has you covered. By depositing USDC into the Bumper protocol, you can earn a return, which is derived from the premiums paid by protection buyers. Early adopters and Empire listeners have a chance to claim a part of the $250,000 early adopter bump rewards. Go check out Bumper. It's bumper.fi. Take a step towards smarter crypto asset risk management. This episode is brought to you by Toku. Toku makes implementing global token compensation and incentive awards simple. With Toku, you get unmatched tax and legal support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. From easy to use token grant award templates through token vesting to managing tax withholdings, Toku understands every grant structure. Token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, token appreciation rights, and even phantom tokens. Tokens. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it is a huge, complex task to have to comply with global regulations around compensating people with tokens, not to mention the payroll, tax obligations, tax reporting in every country that you employ someone. It is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it is drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. Toku makes this simple for leading teams across the space, protocol labs, DY. DX Foundation, Mina Foundation, Hedera, Gnosis, Safe, Gitcoin, and a lot more. Reach out to Toku at toku.com forward slash empire or click the link in the description. Nick, what do you think? You, you mentioned this one thing about regulation. You said a lot of the folks in Argentina who are still using Tether in this way, or I think it's kind of illegal in how they're doing it. The government could inevitably come after them if they really wanted to crack down on this. What do you think of uh, crypto? crypto collateralized stables. And I think roughly we're at five or 6% of the market today. Where does that market go? And if you kind of fast forward two, three, four, five years. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how you count it because like DAI started as a fully. Right. I was trying to figure out how to. And I think if you look at it today, it's like maybe less than 20% of the supply of DAI is actually ETH. There are newer ones like Raft, Libra Finance, uh, Athena's launching. That will be, I think, solely staked ETH based, based on staked ETH derivatives. Dai is like a funny story because, of course, they started as this like pure thing where they were just backed by ETH, and then over time they became a USDC interface, and now they're RWA interface. Um, so I think if you if you did the full accounting, it'd be less than two percent of the stablecoin supply, which is truly crypto collateralized. Which I think is a shame. I think we need an array of different options. We need 
you know, the sort of like quite regulated fiat backed in a, a variety of different jurisdictions. But also I think there was an unmet need for more decentralized, maybe even completely smart contract based mm. stable coins that are issued based on crypto collateral. The fact that ETH pays a yield now uh, is, I think, really accretive. I think that that segment will now become economical. It wasn't really before. Dai had these issues where they couldn't ma- they couldn't keep the peg, and so they had to introduce USDC into the mix. Uh, the fact that ETH now has this yield, uh, yeah, this is the slide. The fact <laughs> that ETH has this yield means that this is now possible. I think uh, so. I see this growing. Um, People maybe have some like PTSD from uh, Terra Luna, but yeah. it was a very different situation. I mean, Terra just was not reserved. I mean, it was it was a very partially collateralized. All these models have different collateralization approaches, but um, they're all fully collateralized, at least in theory. Uh, so I think like the people, you know, they they still kind of struggle a little bit with the UST thing, and and they. Because uh, USD's whole narrative was this has to be a crypto native stablecoin. That's the only way to have it be decentralized. And so, if you're using that same language to sell people on your new stablecoin, people might be suspicious. But yeah, I think this will be a very meaningful segment. Uh, some people will always want the most crypto native, most decentralized solution. So, I think you'll see winners here. I think you could see north of 10% of uh, stablecoin market cap be sort of crypto, crypto based stables. If you were to design a protocol today, like obviously there's been countless like algorithmic stable coins and, and experiments. It's a hugely like fascinating field, like from a game theoretical perspective. And I think we we haven't stopped with like there there will continue to be experiments. Like how would you design it? There have been like uh people talking about like linking it to inflation or purchasing power locally, but then that's huge fragmentation. Um, do you base it off of something off of the dollar or like some sort of commodity? Um, if you were to like wave a wand and design something, like how would you do it? I, um, yeah, I'm curious. I, I wouldn't want it to, I wouldn't want to link it to a unit of account that's not the dollar actually, because you run into troubles when you have something that's appreciating relative to the dollar. Um, and also, we've there are gold backed stable coins. They haven't; they're not really that popular. Like uh, uh, Paxos has one. Yeah, Paxos mm-hmm. Tether has one too. Um, and I know Brian Armstrong talked about flat coins. I think those are meant to be inflation indexed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know how you'd accomplish that, for, uh, frankly. Um, you need you need a better CPI first. Well, uh, well, yeah, yeah. we talked about the and collateral the moving target that is the definition of inflation. But <laughs> also, like, uh, you know, tips, right? I mean, you, in, inflation is a is a geographically contingent thing. So, mm-hmm. um, to me, like inventing a new unit of account is a huge mental hurdle for people, and I think that is why stablecoins are so dollarized. Is people don't want to do accounting and all kinds of like arcane currencies, like. Bitcoin started off as a crypto unit of account, like on exchanges. Remember all these prices were quoted in units of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. That was like this massive mental friction. I mean, even you had NFTs. ETH was the unit of account yeah, for NFTs. Fair, like the unit of account in NFTs is, is ETH. It is ETH still. Yeah, it is ETH still. But then you have to like to do this additional transformation. Where it's like, well, you know, yeah, did I win on this trade or lose on the trade? I have to, you know, incorporate the ETH exchange rate. It's like this whole That's thing. assuming you're cashing out, right? But it, because if, if you con- conceptually think about the economy as denominated in ETH and then 
and you're not never cashing out in the real world, like in the metaverse. And you know, presumably, you could always think about an ETH terms, but at some point, you got to feed yourself, and that is still in dollars. Yeah, that's uh, an optimistic uh, approach. <laughs> I think. By the way, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not like. You know, that I'm just. Yeah. You should really be thinking of it in units of like avocados and steak and you like know the, 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 the gasoline uh, index or whatever. <laughs> yeah, know. like ultimately, we, it's all about purchasing power. It's all. It's yeah, ultimate yeah. about your real purchasing power. So I just from I think from what we've seen, like trying to devise a new unit of account is difficult. And we saw, was it the Rye guys? They had their stablecoin, yeah. which was in initially launching units of Pi dollars, as in like three point one four dollars, not like the food. Um, and that really confused people. It was like flat in dollar terms, but it was a different unit of account, which was endlessly confusing. So I would do it in dollars. You know, yeah. I would just do yeah. it in plain old dollars. I have. Don't we, the market. We, we thought a lot about this, right? Whether you want to be money or whether you want to be an investment. And I think there's, there's two different uh, categories mm -hmm. there. And if you want to be money, it has to be very simple for people to think how much money they're sending you without any math. So for Lido's example, they did stake ETH, which begs to ETH, which makes it very easy for you to know how much money you're, you have when you, whenever you acquire this asset. And they decided to be kind of like EOA first or kind of like consumer first and then DeFi second. And they had to do wrap stake ETH and a lot of the complications that came with that. But I think that was the, the right choice despite all the work that happened with uh, integrations. I think for stable coins, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to have stable coins that are worth always $1. We took that route. And then uh, stable coins that will appreciate in value, we have the wrap USDM. And the question is, do you want to be DeFi first, right? So prioritize integrations, or do you want to be money first and make it easy for people to do payments in your, in your currency? And to me, do, of course, dollars is the biggest market, but in general, the, the take has to be, you have to be one of whatever people think, right? So it's $1, one real, one euro, that, that needs to be the, the unit. And then I think inflation coins or flat coins or energy-based coins and so on, they're going to end up being investments, but I don't see like someone like my mom trying, like sending a payment on a flat coin. Right? Like how is she yeah. going to do the math? Right. So it's too much it, mental overhead. It's a question and, of like, do you want to be money or do you want to be an investment? And yeah, I think well, that's the key. I mean, what, what you could do is you, you have a, and what I want to ask you guys is obviously you're doing, sounds like the same model of fully collateralized or, or largely collateralized, go out and buy treasuries. Uh, or or uh, a basket of you know high grade stuff, whatever it is, um, and then you clip some yield, uh, and then you can wrap. You can have versions of the of said, you know, whatever coin you you know you have, and then you could people can can trade illiquidity for some yield through a wrap version of the underlying thing that is always kind of resembles one to one to a dollar. Uh, and so, shouldn't lose its peg unless people ha have concerns around your credit. Exactly. So the, the, the way we think about the peg is the st most stable coins are packed by TradFi assets, or at least all the fiat-backed stable coins are. So you always have this question of reserves are there, but like if everyone wants to redeem on a Saturday, like there's no way to access it, right? Because the, Monday, the, the market opens on Monday and then you have T plus one settlement and so on. So there's always the liquidity con concept like, uh, arrangement of the stablecoin, but if your collateral is good, which I think the consensus today is short-term U.S. Treasuries, no commercial paper, no long-term assets, 
those should always be good as long as your setup is 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 correct. The 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 second point is okay. Now that you have this asset, how do you make it yield bearing from a stablecoin perspective and also allow for the yield the the appreciating asset? So I, I think state ETH was was the, is the right formula, right? So you get airdropped in a very efficient way, which is the rebasing. So if you have your EOA, you just see money coming in every day mm-hmm. without having to do anything. And then if you wanted to use it in DeFi as a collateral or as anything else, you wrap it and that becomes a kind of like constant balance ERC20 that most of DeFi knows how to work with. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's the model that at least we, we, we talk a lot with uh, several issuers, right? Transfero in Brazil, we talk with uh, Noom Finance, they are issuing coins in several countries. Everyone is going with the same model, right? Like pegged the like plain asset and then uh, wrapped appreciating asset. Yeah. I want to double click on something you said earlier, which is what happens on the weekends, which is, there's some limitations, right? Like we saw this with Circle uh, a few months back. I think it was six months where because of this lack of infrastructure, like certain big players have started, have stopped operating during the well, weekend that. Yeah, the U.S. government destroyed the liquidity <laughs> facilities. <laughs> well, like that's Stan too. and Signet, like that was yeah, why exactly. They, that was their this was, usefulness. As that went away, that the following like that weekend or the following weekend, there was huge concerns around being able to actually settle these things, and so you saw the the USDC depeg. For any rational investor, you look at that and that that's a that's inefficiency. Like it should go back to the peg, but those moments of deviation from the peg. I think really hurt consumer confidence in, I, in using something like USDC. So the question to you guys is like, again, going back to this idea, like how do you see like that as a challenge and, and overcoming those moments where, you know, the dollar never deviates because, you know, at the end of the day, you're trusting the, you know, fighter planes and the, 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 the muscle of the United States to be the dominant. Let and, and, me, yeah. Let me let me caveat that the dollar does deviate. If you go to Argentina with a dollar, the old dollar that has a small face versus the big oh, face. Oh right, yeah, yeah. There's like the, those deviate. In fact, right, right, this right, is what is Hang on a second. That? You gotta explain this. So this is an insane. There's thing. some dollar bills that people like in other countries do not like. They're like non fungibility. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. even there's, the dollar is non fungible. So this is not, not only a crypto yeah. thing. We can get to the crypto weekend liquidity. I have lots of opinions there, but like the. This story is funny. So if you go to an ATM in the US and you insert, I think it's the small face, the one that's the newest and the big face, we're talking about Benjamin's $100. You put a big face, I think the big face will be returned more often than than the small face, right? So the ATM will not take it because it it had, I think, lower security uh, kind of like for for, uh, counterfeit. So if you go to Argentina with the big face, they will discount that uh, like one or two percent really? from the traditional, uh, like the, the newer version of the dollar. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Huh. so they even the dollar is not completely. Uh, some fungible. of them don't even take them. They're like, no, come back with a real one. They, this just this actually them. happened to me in Singapore. I gave, I was paying in physical U.S. dollars for some reason for an Uber. The driver is like, yeah, I can't take those. They're crinkled. They're too crinkled. The money changes not going to take them. Yeah, and so I fanned out Singapore. every dollar in my wallet. I'm like, you pick like a deck of cards. <laughs> you pick the ones he want, and he's like going through and like <laughs> there's non fungibility with even how wrinkled the dollars are. That's the funny. further you get it from the US. Yeah, yeah. Same, like nice and crispy. I, yeah. So 
that, that is with the fungibility of the dollar. Uh, not every dollar looks the same. I think if we go to the private money eras, uh, the private bank notes were dollar, like were taken differently, this, uh, like depending on the distance and how, yeah. how hard it was mm-hmm. to actually redeem that value. So I think this kind of like the, the note that is redeemable at $1 for a certain number of parties being valued at a different price than the redeemability price is something that is a constant in the economy, right? Like now we're seeing it with stable coins, but we've seen it with other assets in the past. In terms of the weekend, that I think the circle weekend is a very good learning lesson because we had two things at the same time. We had a liquidity question, right? Like you couldn't access um, redemption of USDC. Coinbase stopped the one-to-one conversion on Prime. But there was also a solvency question on the reserves, right? There was a, the estimates were 3% whole in the reserves. And the thing about a hole in the reserves is the last man standing will eat 100% of the loss. So you have like a game theory problem where if you redeem early, you might collect something. But if 97% of the people redeem and you go, you get zero. Yeah, because it's a first in, first out basis. It's not your pro rata share of the reserves. Exactly. Until they go for bankruptcy, but like you cannot declare Mm -hmm. bankruptcy on the weekend and... If you do, then the question is like, what is the cut of time that the bankruptcy court is going to take? So you have, once you get into solvency questions, the, I think the fear is a lot more rational than mm-hmm. it is when it is a, a liquidity question. So I, I think that's the learning from the, the, the circle weekend is you have a liquidity mm-hmm. problem, but you also have a big solvency mm-hmm. question. And the, the big thing there, I, I think is like the, in the pyramid of money, you have, you used to have gold. Now you don't have that anymore. You have Fed. Uh, reserves. You cannot access that as any stable coin issuer. So those are not accessible. So the next thing is T-bills, but then you have bank deposits mm-hmm. and bank deposits are uninsured loan to a hedge fund that happens to be licensed as a bank. Yeah. But like if that hedge fund goes under, you lose your, you lose your assets uh, above whatever the insurance level yeah. is. During the regional banking crisis, I think a lot of people realize that, that discrepancy and then move directly into T-bills because yeah, if in a situation of bankruptcy, you, you know, it's quite different treatment. Uh, and and the, yeah. the question is, as a stable issuer, what do you do now, right? So yeah, you, exactly. you know that banks are, are risky. No matter what bank you have, you still have a, a percentage risk that it goes under unless it's a GCIF, but GCIFs won't bank uh, stable issuers for several reasons. So the question is, how do you build your reserve structure and how do you ensure liquidity uh, by doing that? So... Everyone is innovating and, and trying new things. Uh, mm. For instance, what, what we do, of course, the SLA for every stablecoin issuer is T plus two, but no one wants to go T plus two because that affects your secondary market price if market makers cannot redeem. So what we are building is a network of partners that allow us to do crypto repo transactions. So that sounds yeah. like a very complex way of saying, take a USDM, which is a claim on a T plus two basis and give me a USDC or a USDT now, mm-hmm. and then I'll pay a fee. And then you use big balance sheets, so people that are actively working in crypto to access this liquidity on a kind of like as needed basis. And I think the market is going to go more towards that type of solution to solving liquidity rather than mm-hmm. bank deposits or, or, or other forms of, of liquidity. Mm-hmm. So, well, we, and, well, and I think we, you'll see other experiments, but that's, yeah. that's kind of like the direction we are going. One of the big tragedies of stables in this country, one of the things that's holding the sector back is the fact that there were two networks which allowed fiat to move at the speed of crypto for the sake of weekend settlement for stable coins which was sun and signet yeah. and in the, 
in the process of the banks failing or being murdered, whatever your opinion is <laughs> in this country, my view, they were assassinated. It wasn't, they didn't just suicide themselves, you know, who was the sniper? The, oh. <laughs> uh, the NYDFS in the case of uh, signature, um, you know, like signature, I think in particular was, was one of the big casualties here. Uh, apparently solvent when they were shuttered signet, which was their fiat clearing network, which allowed dollars to move at the speed of crypto. Uh, that one was not sold in the FDIC acquisition process where they were divesting all the signature assets. They just let that wither on the vine, which is crazy. And no other bank has been able to build anything like that because they're terrified of the signature treatment happening to them. So that's one something people don't talk about. Stablecoin infrastructure in this country was degraded because we lost these fiat clearing networks and you need fiat to move at the speed of crypto. Otherwise you get these discrepancies when we're not in banking hours. Yeah. And can you just briefly explain how Signet worked? Oh man, Martin, I might have to draft you in for this one. <laughs> it sounds be- like it's just yeah, basically Signet Martin, what you were talking about, like this repo mark, but yeah. Yeah. C- Signet was a, I think they even used a, a private blockchain internally. So yeah, essentially what they did it, is, yeah. They extended the, the, like you had to be a customer of Signet to participate. So every participant was a KYB. So imagine this is a fully KYB private blockchain. And then your wallet, which was your account balance, could be transferred 24 7. So mm-hmm. what they did is they opened this window from kind of like the traditional Monday through Friday uh, banking hours timeline to 24 7 for internal transfers. If you wanted to do a wire or access any other type of payment network, you had to go outside. But if you were dealing with Circle and another exchange and your market maker and everyone was in the same ecosystem, you could do you could do all those settlements as long as you had balances in the account 24-7. So amazing product. Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of it, and this is why it can't be rebuilt today, was that most of the relevant crypto entities in the US were banked by either Silvergate or Signature, in particular Signature. The problem was after FTX... The Fed went to all the banks and they said, yeah, you can't have more than 15% of your deposits be pertaining to crypto. Mm -hmm. And so this meant that none of the banks could get a critical mass of crypto firms Mm -hmm. all on their own kind of internal network. So it was kind of a nice point in time that we had like two years of like sort of like functioning fiat infrastructure on the crypto side. And ever since the Fed created that edict, now the banks can't get that network effect. So nobody's and, able to do it today. And if you go offshore, you still need a, a correspondent bank in the US to access, like for money to come in and out from your ecosystem, right? So you still need uh, access to, to uh, SWIFT or wire infrastructure with a correspondent bank. So in the end, even though this bank is offshore, the, the, the US establishment pushing the correspondent bank means it's very, very hard to actually build and advertise mm-hmm. and all of that, even if you're if you outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. So that, that's also what's making it very hard for like this network effect to build in right. banks in, in other jurisdictions. So, th- so exactly. So that's what I wanted to go back to, which is this repo kind of market that you're talking about. I mean, ultimately, wouldn't you face the same constraints or challenges if you try to access like the SWIFT network or, or you're kind of not even touching that? So the good thing about a, a crypto repo market is um, you do that fully on chain. So let's say I, I, you have USDM fully backed by treasuries. 
I send it to you on a Saturday, you send me USDC, I send it to my customer. So then the customer feels immediate redemptions. And then I repurchase that USDM on a Tuesday from you. So essentially what I need is traditional bank access. I don't need a bank that, tra- that banks everyone else because I will settle that transaction via traditional Fedwire um, and on-ramp without needing that bank to bank all of my other partners. So it, it's kind of like a, a good in, like a good solution for now. Of course, the previous solution was way better, but this solution allows you to, to provide that immediately. You're swapping like-for-like like stable coins, so you're never exactly. actually interacting with the traditional rails. It's exactly. just all within. So Assuming to, that the corresponding parties agree to that and are okay with it. You exactly. need a counterparty with USDC reserves that they're right. willing to part with it on the weekend in exchange for a fee, right? Yeah, yeah and, and usually if you're a market maker, right, you have a ton of like a ton of uh, you're making markets. So you have this USDC in several places and these balance sheets tend to be like you can go from hundreds of millions to billions of dollars, right? So this scales to like that level. You are not going to be able to settle transactions on the tens of billions. Uh, But at at like that level, you can, if you pay, like the question is what APY are you paying them? Yeah, it's just sort of a market clearing rate. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And where are you in terms of developing that? So there's an announcement that's going to come out pretty soon. So uh, you can make it now if you want. I mean, we love announcements. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. There's, the secret. There's, there's, there's some alpha coming there. So um, yeah. But yeah, we're going to make that, this announcement with a with a partnership uh, okay. pretty soon, and then that will allow anyone who holds uh, our, our token to swap into uh, like uh, other types of stables, uh, even on the weekends at like a very large rate, um, mm-hmm. instead of having to wait for mm-hmm. that T plus and this repo market, do you envision it being mostly or exclusively institutional? Or do you have like, you know, like a construct like AMM is basically allowed anyone to be a market maker. So would presumably like retail be able to kind of play in this market and, and earn a yield? I think the retail market participates. So the, the, the flow of funds is you generate an asymmetry in the AMM, which triggers the market maker to try to balance that out. And that requests money from us, right? So in the end, our customer would be, in this case, most likely the market maker, or it would be a large centralized exchange where we were going back earlier, doing their own stable, having large redemptions over the weekend. So they would sell into us a a, a lot of USDM. So those would probably be the two biggest customers. And then for you as a consumer, the benefit of this repo market existing is the secondary market price is very tight to one on the weekends, which... If you don't have it on the weekends, you should see a higher spread because the, for the opportunity to be worthwhile, usually for, for you to take longer term um, like exposure, the opportunity is to be better than an arbitrage. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Right. so that's, that's a benefit right. for you as a retailer. When we've seen some inefficiencies between centralized exchanges and, and DeFi, that ARB usually goes away fairly quickly. And that's the beauty of like the interaction of these two ecosystems is that these arbitrages get arbed out fairly quickly because sophisticated exactly. players just, and so it, it keeps the system presumably in balance, unless there's of course a fundamental like going concern of degradation and trust. Exactly. Which, the power of the arbitrage is it's Delta neutral. So you're not taking any directional risk on anything. So if you're going to make $7 and gas is five, the bot will make that transaction and will mm-hmm. capture those $2. Whereas taking a liquid a liquidity arbitrage where you're waiting for Tuesday, you're going long on a specific asset. So that number needs to be better. And it's probably on the thousands for someone to come in and, and make that deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Nick, I want to, I mean, obviously the, we're recording this episode and over the weekend we were talking about yet another government shutdown in the U.S. And uh, of course, we keep talking about the unsustainability of, you know, the growing debt and interest expense and and the long, we, we keep going back to this and I don't want to make this a like a political and because, you know, an economic like podcast, but I, I, I would be remiss not to bring it up. And I want to get your takes on just how you think about Again, the collateral here is treasuries. Sounds like everyone's like gravitating to that. Like, what are your thoughts around just generally the fiscal irresponsibility and state of, of not just the U.S. government but other governments? And what is the most pristine collateral? And how do you see that evolving if, yeah. if we're changing at all? Yeah, good question. It is kind of ironic that we're talking <laughs> about bring treasuries on chain and stable coins. Of course, are all backed by treasuries, and then the treasury is something that us crypto people have been kind of trashing for the better part of mm-hmm. a decade now. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, treasury yields were deeply negative for a while in real terms, and now they're actually positive, which is pretty cool. So everyone, like Luke Groman, likes to talk about, um, you know, financial repression, which means you run inflation hot and you pay uh, a lower nominal yield. So then the delta means the government can reset their debt position, bring down the debt in real terms, which actually they were able to do a certain amount with the negative uh, real yields that we saw. Right now, today, yields are positive in real terms. So it's pretty remarkable. Um, so that's good for savers, of course. That's bad for the government, right? So we really looking at the debt charts here. I mean, these are official U.S. These are CBO projections. This is government's own projections. Where you just see the debt to GDP level just going parabolic. That's nuts. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, it is nonlinear. Um, interest expense is over a trillion dollars now. Um, For any, it, if this country, if this slides, if you, if you slap away, if, if you just look at that and you say, if it was Greece or Turkey or Argentina or any other country that's running jet to, debt to GDP levels of this nature, like there would be a huge, huge degradation trust. And then you would see like a deep, like a huge. Yeah. I, it, and the other feature is, I mean, foreign holders of, of treasuries are divesting. So um, Japan is divesting for kind of mechanical reasons to defend the yen. And China is divesting, for, I would say, for more political reasons, which is they fear the Russia treatment, even though it would be kind of mutually assured destruction if we seize China's reserves. Um, I think they, you know, no one had ever seen the U.S. sanction a G20 nation before. Like we've sanctioned small nations many times and seize their reserves, Venezuela, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, I think we did it too. Like the US has done this actually a number of times. They've seized official reserves and dollars of these uh, smaller, more pariah nations. Russia was a huge incremental change there. So I think China is wary of having too much exposure to treasuries. They also may think it's a bad store value asset. Fundamentally, the math for the math to work, inflation has to return. And yields have to be negative in real terms. And that, of course, means that treasury holders will lose. Uh, so over the coming decades, even though things are nice and positive in real terms right now, over the coming decades, it's going to have to happen unless there's a demographic change or a productivity unlock. And we can kind of grow our way out of trouble. I mean, if, if GDP growth picks up, then we can bail ourselves out, basically. So that's kind of the big asterisk on everything. You're saying the only way to get out of this chart, Nick, is either inflation to basically eat away at the debt or some colossal productivity 
unlock, which you know maybe could be AI or something like that. Or we could default, right? That's also or you could default. well. There's two options, three options really: inflation, uh, which I think is most likely one; default, which the US is. I don't think we intend to do that. Um, or um, yeah, demographics could change, but that doesn't look likely. Um, or, or we could also raise taxes massively. I don't think we're going to do that. Um, so good luck trying to get elected. Yeah, exactly. So in democracies, there's like one way these things go, which is you do the kind of covert deleveraging uh, through uh, inflation and, and capping yields. And with the long yields rising just in the last week or so, like we're starting to see central bankers get a little nervous. They're like, oh, we don't know why the 30 year is rising so much. Uh, so that I think you would expect to see more conversations about doing yield curve control. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the coming weeks, actually. So look out for that. But yeah, the the one way out here that's sort of like the good case would be productivity unlock. And I actually, for I do think AI can be that. I think AI can add two to three points of GDP growth for a decade or so. Like I think of it as as consequential as the invention of nuclear power. Um, so I do think it is a massive productivity unlock, which could potentially help us out of our very unfortunate uh, fiscal position. Uh, without requiring a ton of inflation, I think it'll also be very disruptive at the same time. Uh, so maybe you know, they'll, like it won't be good for society. It'll you know increase inequality. Uh, but yeah, I'm actually kind of weirdly optimistic about this, even though on their face the numbers look really bad. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. The only real nice scenario here is productivity growth, and yeah. You know, AI adoption, nuclear. I mean, yeah, we might have nuclear fusion might yeah, become well, a thing. Well, like there might be some I mean, kind of space. I mean, I just saw thing. a chart. The issue, though, I just saw a chart over the weekend of like how many new like reactors are being built. Not not all these are like the huge reactors, like small modular reactors. And like China is building like twenty or thirty. Russia, Turkey, basically all developing countries are building a ton of these. And then like France is building one, but they already get like seventy five percent of the energy from nuclear. No other kind of country in the European Union is building any or is serious about it. The UK is building one, but I think it's like a massive operation is going to go way above budget. And then the US is building one or two, which is like laughable. So, yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, growth is our ability to marshal our resources yeah. and energy is the discount rate. So if energy is expensive, you're not going to have good growth, which is what the EU is dealing with. I mean, they made their own bed because they, in my opinion, have this kind of suicidal energy policy. The U.S. is in a much better position. Like we are the ones shipping LNG to Europe and ripping their faces off with the spread there. We are an energy rich nation. It's just a matter of finding the political will to exploit it. If we and like, you know, if you look at European growth over the last decade, like a lot of that was because they had cheap Russian gas. You look at our growth, our disinflation over the last decades because we had the shale revolution. Mm-hmm. So it a lot of this is downstream of energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So part, it, you know, the question is like, will we find the will to unlock that and and you know use more nuclear, whatever it is? Nice. I love episodes when we go back to nuclear because this is something that we've had, like Josh Wolf and we've got some like only like, nuclear. Like when you think about the it. two most non-consensus things in the world right now, it is probably crypto and nuclear. Like. Talk about like two things that we know can you know offer a lot of benefits, but the world just has a very negative view towards them. The, the overall- yeah, I mean, we basically I think what we need is like for Germany to acknowledge, hey, we screwed up by turning off all the nuclear <laughs> yeah. reactors. It was and- just woke policies where like they were shutting down their only remaining nuclear reactor 
months after the the war started and you're like well yeah i think they, idea. after fukushima i think merkel shut down seven reactors yeah and yeah, yeah. i was baffled by that because you don't have tsunamis in uh <laughs> germany um you, you don't have earthquakes either for that matter also the german reactors would have been able to withstand fukushima because they're newer reactors yeah so, and you like, have france near, nearby so you're still taking the risk anyways france in the mean meanwhile is you know they have a ton of strikes but they're not related because of the energy prices keep going up they've but yeah it's just shocking um Guys, I have, I have one more question for you here, like kind of playing this out. So you, uh, Martin, you guys got registered in Bermuda, I think you said. Um, what happens when Singapore, so Singapore just had some like very positive stable coin regulation, I think it was. So Bermuda, there's UAE is becoming like pretty pro stable coin as well. Uh, Hong Kong becoming pro stable coin. What happens when like the major USD denomin- denominated stable coins are all getting issued out of like the UAE and Hong Kong, what, like, what does that do for, is that a good thing, a bad thing? It doesn't like, n- you know, nothing to really look into there. What do you, you mean for that? the U.S.? Yeah, for the U.S. I think it's a very good thing that despite you trying to kill it, you're generating forced buyers of yeah. treasuries because in the end, we don't participate in the auction. We buy at whatever price, right? So um, yeah. mm. you're a price taker. So mm you're generating in the, in the demand curve, you're generating a bunch of demand that is like, you would take it at whatever price. And mm-hmm. this is, some, some people that argue against this is like, okay, you're changing a dollar for a stable coin, it's still a dollar, right? I think the argument is stable coins penetrating are changing other currencies to the dollar, right? Like yeah. you can see whole economy start to move into dollar. So it's like net new dollar demand that is purchasing treasuries. So I think that's the disruptive thing that I think is very hard to feel in the U.S. because like stable coins are not like most people here don't understand why you need them. But um, offshore, it's like, of course, I, I would swap and store my value and transact here. And I think that net new purchaser of, of U.S. dollars and, and treasuries is the biggest benefit uh, in the country. Yeah. I put the it like sheer reason of- I just think it's good for the average American in that it makes our debt more manageable in theory if crypto becomes and stable coins become a huge asset class at say trillion dollars it's not good for the quote-unquote deep, deep state like it's not necessarily good for washington's ability to project power indiscriminately through dollar rails because there's more transactions dollar transactions happening elsewhere the issuers are going to be domiciled elsewhere they're going to be less accountable to the u.s government so good for ordinary americans not necessarily good for like the political ambitions of Washington. And let, let me caveat there, Nick, which is I think the thing that is going to be prevented with stablecoins is the coverted government enforcement because all of the stablecoin issuers are going to support whatever a court requires, right? Like I don't see a stablecoin issuer that's going to be, you know, we're, gonna, we're not going to support a U.S. judge saying that we need to block this asset. Yeah. What you are, or the FBI, or like a, a, an actual enforcement, what you don't have is kind of like the, behind the scenes power that gets inflicted via intermediaries just because stable coins are so transparent. So I think that behind the scenes power is, is what Nick is referring to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ultimately, like if you're, if you're talking to a regular, you're like, well, why wouldn't you? Like it's, it's just overwhelmingly either net, like neutral or overwhelmingly positive, like growing demand for US dollars and greater transparency. Like think about the shadow economy, like how many transactions being done in cash? Well, if you're the IRS or the tax authority of India or whatever country, 
you have no visibility into that. Now, all of a sudden, you you do if if all of these transactions are happening in a public blockchain, and that's hugely beneficial. I mean, at the end of the day, Martin, Martin I sort of agree with your view, which is, you know, you either like accept that, and then and then you're you're very much pro that, irrespective of who you are. Like, I just. Uh, maybe the more important question is like how far off or how far away do you think we are to get to that state where we just like 10x the stablecoin um you know volume and adoption and like what i guess as we think about wrapping up the episode like what are the major catalysts you see in the horizon uh both nick from an investing standpoint like things that you may be thinking about like wallets or yeah, you know, things like Mountain Protocol and Martin from a developer kind of entrepreneurial standpoint, what are some of the catalysts that you see? I'll I'll start. I'll, I would say the crypto rate has to go back above the fiat rate for the stablecoin supply to start growing again. Um, the adoption of stables, and it's mainly happening through these intermediaries like fintech apps, DeFi wallet, right? That is 100% happening. In fact, we've been inundated with these kinds of pitches over the last couple of months. Um, mainly EM focused, but virtually every country you can think of, it's like will be the stablecoin wallet for X. We're seeing that, so that's just happening anyway. I don't think that's going to go away. It's not like the you know fiat currencies of the world are going to start becoming credible again. So I think you're going to see episodes of this sort of crypto dollarization occur. And I've been predicting this for years, and it hasn't happened outside of maybe Venezuela. So uh, I'll just keep predicting it, and eventually I'll be right, and then at that point I'll you know, celebrate that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't see any specific catalysts. I mean, dollarization Argentina could be one, for instance. Uh, but that is sort of happening on ongoing basis. But yeah, for me, the number one thing is actually crypto yields coming back above TradFi yields. So I think that'll probably happen in the next 12 months. I I have a more positive view than, than Nick. I think you're going to see growth in, in, dollar, in stable coins. Because now you have a better dollar that you can sell with a stablecoin than not having a stablecoin, right? So if you think about the euro dollar banking system in most countries, you're going to get a dollar interest-bearing account if you're a very large corporate, but your average kind of like SME and consumer doesn't have access to that product. So these kind of like uh, DeFi mullets uh, capturing that demand, I think you're going to see a lot of that. So high-yield checking accounts for uh, individuals, for SMEs, the SME side, I'm, I'm very excited because it was a, a, a segment that didn't have a business model before and now you have one uh, because the business model has always been swaps. SMEs don't swap, but now that if you can get an, an interest margin, you can you can serve them. So I think that that's one. In terms of the rate of, of crypto going above TradFi, I think the, the way that happens is if you start bringing in the risk-free rate into all of your blue chip protocols, so you start to stack the risk-free rate plus whatever fees are generated, let's say on an, on an AMM. So I think we're going to see uh, USDM stake ETH pools. So uh, instead of USDC ETH, so instead of paying USDC and getting deflated out in ETH, you're going to get your stake ETH uh, rewards and then you're going to get your risk-free rate on dollars. So mm -hmm. that is a pool that will pay more than the, than the risk-free rate. You're going to get a USDM staked uh, Brazilian rail pool. So now you have a Forex, uh, like clearinghouse that can pay more, that is more efficient than, than what you have. So I think those are going to be the places where you deposit money and you're going to be able to, with a very limited 
additional risk, which is the smart contract risk that you're taking, but that most have been very battle tested, uh, you're able to generate above kind of like risk-free rate uh, returns. And I think that's what's going to bring institutions back in. I mean, of course, the first condition you mentioned requires that there is no choke point operation uh, in these places, which you would think that there is some opportunity that these countries, as we've seen, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, really appreciate that, hey, this is an opportunity for us to step up and become more relevant in, uh, in the financial hub and develop that. And so you could see, you know, but, but you know, importantly, if governments really want to make this impossible, they can't. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing the opposite of choke point. We're yeah. seeing uh, outside with, the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah it's, so it's like a direct reaction. I mean, Hong Kong said they have a stablecoin uh, yes. regulation coming next year. Singapore already passed one. You'll see it in the UAE as well. Yeah. Bermuda. I'll be in Bermuda next week. They love stable coins. They mm -hmm. love crypto. So yeah. we're we're seeing the reaction abroad to the basically the failure in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. It's so fascinating. Like just as you described and open Nick, like the euro dollar market coming to being in the 60s, 70s, we're seeing the same with stablecoin. The parallels are very much there. Um, look, guys, this has been a fascinating episode. We, we haven't even talked. I think there's so many other topics that we can delve into, like insurance and all the different kind of like securitization of like, you know, staking yields and all this stuff that could be embedded into these products. It just feels like it's a very nascent category, but it is kind of the Trojan horse of crypto. And, um, you know, you really appreciate you guys' perspective and coming on and, and talking about that as, as Anything else you guys want to end with or, you know, perhaps like, you know, parting thoughts and places where people can follow your work? Look, watch my talks. My uh, token 2049 one, I think is the key one. So it's, yeah. uh, you know, all, a lot talk. of the fintechs I'm talking about, like I put all their names on a slide. So if you want to dig in further, um, yeah, it's, it's we all can there. link that. We can, we'll link that in the show notes. And then for us, uh, it's at Mountain USDM. That's our Twitter handle. And then my person is at MKarika. So uh, you can follow my thoughts there too. Cool. Nick, Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Martin, it's uh, a pleasure to have you. Nick, good to have you back as always. Thanks, guys. Take Thank care. you very much, guys. Appreciate Bye. it. Take care.